Now, the third idea <coughs> is that the Rabbani Shlom will deliver. He will do what he promises to do. He will always keep his promise. Now, this also derives from the name, from the Shem of Yudke Vavke. Why? Because since the Rabbani Shlom is existence per se, he is being, that is his essence, and therefore everything derives its existence from the Rabbani Shlom. Obviously, he therefore has absolute mastery and control over everything, because he who is existence and who gives existence to everything else obviously is their master, because he makes them be. Then I ask you, who or what can obstruct him or influence him if he wants to keep his promise? Obviously nothing. If the Rabbanishlam wants to keep his promise, then obviously he will keep his promise because there is nothing in all reality that can force the Rabbanishlam not to do what he wants to do. Since all reality derives their existence from the Rabbanishlam. So therefore, absolutely nothing can stop or influence the Rabbanishlam if he wants to keep a promise that he made. Therefore, the Rabbanisham is always able to keep his promise because he is existence itself. Therefore, his attribute, his characteristic that he will keep his promise is derived from Yudke Vavke or is associated with the Shem of Yudke Vavke because since he is being, therefore he can deliver any promise he wants to. Now, as I said before, once saw the actualization of Anhogas Yichud, the f- sufficiency of the Rabbanishim's blessing. In other words, the fact that the Rabbanishim has all the blessings that he, uh, that he uh, would want to give. And the keeping of the promise he made to the others at Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. That is when one saw all these ideas in, actual- in actuality. Not in potential, but in actuality. Why? Since the actualization of these ideas occurred then, then one would expect the name of Yudke Vovke, which identifies these ideas in actuality, to be mentioned then also. In other words, since these ideas that God conducts himself through an Yichud to ensure that clients will be redeemed, will be able to massacre the Bria, that God has a sufficiency of blessings, and that if he wants to redeem, he can redeem them. And that God also will deliver, he will keep the promise that he had made to the others. These things which are indicated in the name of Yudke Vovke, since these things are occurring at that time and actuality, of course one would expect that the name Yudke Vovke should be present at the time of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. That is exactly what we find. In Parshas Vo'era it says, Vaidaber Elokim El Moshe, and God spoke to Moshe. And he said to him, Ani Hashem, I am God. I am Yudke Vovke. Note, he's now saying that the attribute or characteristic which is found or identified by Yudke Vovke, I am that. You will see it performed. And I appeared unto Avram, El Yitzchok, unto Yitzchok, Vilyakov, unto Yaakov, Bekel Shaddai, with the name of Kel Shaddai. In other words, that they only knew me as Kel Shaddai. Ushmi Yudke Vavke, Ushmi Hashem, but according to the attribute or characteristics which is identified by the name of Yudke Vavke, Lunadati Lehem, I was not known to them. In other words, the others only knew me, they actually saw me 
as one who could potentially conduct myself in terms of anhogas yichud, which is the absolute mastery, and make sure that their offspring will be redeemed. Also, that I will redeem their descendants, that I have the sufficiency of blessings, that one of my blessings is redemption. And the third idea, that I will fulfill my, pro- my promise. They only saw me these, as these things only in terms of uh, potential. In other words, they knew my attribute of anhogas yichud in potential. My attribute of keeping my promise in potential. And the fact that I have the blessings that I want to give in potential. Therefore they only knew me by the Shem of Kael Shaddai. In other words, the others did not really behold or they didn't know me. They never saw me. They never saw this attribute, these ideas were pearl in actuality. Therefore they, they did not know or see the truth of Yud Kevovke as my real name. They knew that my name was Yud Kevovke. But they did not see the truth of that name because they did not see the truth of the attribute which is identified with that name. And what is the, the attribute which is identified with that name? The sufficiency of blessings and the fact that God delivers His promise in actuality. They never saw this. And that name refers to God doing these things in actuality. Therefore, they never saw me act in actuality. Therefore, they did not know the truth. Of that attribute which Yud Kevovke identifies. You, however, you, Moshe Rabbeinu, however, are about to see these ideas in actuality. You are about to see Anogas HaYichud in actuality because through Anogas HaYichud the Jews will go out of Egypt. You are about to see the redemption in actuality. Therefore, you see that I, if I want to bless them with redemption, I can. I have that blessing. And you are about to see the actual fulfillment of my promise in actuality, which I had made to the others. Therefore, you will see that I am Yudke Vovke, that I am God, and that I embody these three ideas in actuality. This is my real name. In other words, this name which identifies these attributes, you will see that it's true because you will see that these attributes are true because at that time the Rebbe of course, is about to do all this. And that is what, Moshe, what the Rebbe tells Moshe. By Dabra came to Moshe and God spoke to Moshe. By Yom and he said to him, I need Yud Kei I am the Rebbe who am about to do these three ideas in actuality. You will see these attributes and therefore you will know the truth of that name which identifies these attributes. But Bo'era, but I appear to Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov, Bekeel Shaddai. I appear to them in the name which identifies these attributes only in potential. But the name Yud Kevavke was not known to them because at that time they only knew me this way. But they didn't see the actuality of these ideas. You, however, Moshe Rabbeinu, are about to see the actuality of these ideas. To sum up what I have just, just said, is that Yitzchok uses the name Kel Shaddai to Yaakov when he gives them the Birkas Avram because this name indicates the fact that the Rebbeinu will conduct himself in Anogas Yichud. He will give them the blessing of redemption, which he has. He will deliver his promise. That's why he says Kel Shaddai. But when the Rebbeinu actually does so, in actuality, then of course Yud Kevovke is the name that's used and therefore this name appeared to Moshe Rabbeinu not to the others in other words that they didn't see the truth of this name in terms of the Rabbeinu Shlom now 
Therefore, now what do we see now? That Yitzchak gives Yaakov the Birchus Arvam. This is what we saw now. Now, we may ask at this present time, what is really the Birchus Avram? What does it consist of? Rashi says something very interesting. Rashi says that this Birchus Avram, which Yitzchak is giving Yaakov before he's about to go to Lovan, this refers specifically to two blessings that were given. Which two blessings do, does the Birchus Avram refer to? The first one is the I will make you a great nation. And the second brocha is And all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your seed. And Rashi says where this brocha is stated, what is the meaning of this, that all nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your seed? It means that when a guy will say to his child, you should be blessed like the children of Israel. So they know the guy is blessing his children by Klai Yisrael, by the attributes of Klai Yisrael. That is what's meant by that your seed, the goyim, all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your seed. In other words, when they bless themselves and their children, they will use as a reference, as a model for blessing your particular offspring. This is what Rashi says. Now, we see therefore that Rashi says that these are the only two blessings which are involved or which are meant by the Birkas Avram. But we can ask a question, why only these two brochas? Why only these two of all the brochas given to Avram? Because there were many blessings given to Avram or Vino. Will make you a great name and so on. Why does the Birkas Avram only refer to these two blessings? It would seem, therefore, that if this is what Yitzchak is referring to as the Birkas Avram, according to Rashi, then these two brochas, these two blessings, must convey the essence of all other brochas. Therefore, it is not necessary to give the other blessings that Rabbi Shalom gave to Avram, these two blessings suffice, because in them is the essence of all the other blessings. Therefore, of course, the other brachas are not necessary to be stated. Is this the case? Do we see in the Eschel Godel, the first bracha, I will make you a great nation, and in the second bracha, that all the nations shall bless themselves by your offspring. Do we see in these two blessings the quintessence of the blessings which were given to Avram? And the answer is yes. This is truly the case. How? Let us recall, what are the two most fundamental blessings that the Rav gave Avram? What are they? If you recall, they are these. The first one is that he and his descendants, that Avram and his descendants, will be engaged in the pivotal task of all creation. And what is that? That is to bring a tikkun to the universe, to correct the status in the universe, to bring the Rebbe back into the universe. In other words, to restore the presence of the Rebbe throughout all creation. And therefore, all may perceive the true relationship of the Rebbe to creation. In other words, that he is the source of existence of all beings. They will perceive the idea of Yichud Mitzi Usoy and the idea of Yichud Shli Now, 
as such, if he and his descendants will be engaged in this pivotal task, then as such, he and his descendants will have the power to bring into the universe the Rabban Islam or remove the Rabban Islam from creation. In other words, they have the power to produce a greater presence of God or to produce a greater concealment of the, of the Rabban Islam. This is the power of Tikkun which is given to Avram and to all Jews. This is the first fundamental blessing which is given to Avram. The power of Tikkun and the fact that Avram and his descendants will be engaged in this pivotal task of being a second creation to bring the Rabban Islam back into creation. The second most fundamental brocho that the Rabban Islam gave the Jews is that he and his descendants, that Avram Avinu and his descendants will actually do this. They will actually accomplish this mission to massacre the Bria. In other words, they will actually do this pivotal task, whether it be through their own initiative, which is Anhogas Mishpat, or whether they do it with the Rabbani Shalom's assistance, Anhogas HaYichod. These are the two most fundamental blessings given by the Rabbani Shalom to have Romovino. That number one, this is their task, and this is their power, and number two, that they will actually accomplish the mission of being a second creation. Even if it means that the Rebbe has to conduct himself with an Yichud to make sure that it comes about. That's the sum up. That is the two most fundamental blessings that the Rebbe gave Avraham Avinu. Now, this is exactly what these two blessings convey in the Birk of Avraham. How? And it's interesting, incredibly, that Rashi chose them as the, as the Birchus of Rome because these two brachas do indicate they actually identify with these two fundamental blessings. How? The first one, which is the Eschole Goy Godel, and I will make you a great nation, it means a nation that has the power of Tikkun to do the most important task of all. That is why they are called the great nation. In other words, we ask and I will make you a great nation. Why are they a great nation? Not, they are not a great nation because they will achieve riches, because they will achieve great cultural, uh, cultural um, discoveries or scientific discoveries. That is not why the Rebbe says they will be a great nation. <clears throat> they will be a great nation because they will have the greatest power on all earth. And you know what that is? The power to bring the Rabban Shalom in the Brio or to remove him. The power of Tikkun. They are the greatest nation because they have this power and therefore they are engaged in the greatest mission of all, the greatest task of all, which is to, to do the Tikkun of the Brio. That is why they are called the great nation. Therefore, the Eschol God means, and I will make you a great nation, it means that your descendants will have the power of Tikkun and be engaged in the pivotal task of being Masakin creation. <coughs> this is what is meant by a great nation. And the second bracha, <coughs> which is included in the Birka Savran, because they will truly accomplish their task through Anhogas HaYichod, in other words, through the assistance of the Rabbani Shlom, and therefore they will bring all creation to an intended, blessed, perfected state, then obviously all nations will bless their own children, saying that they should be like the Bnei Yisrael. Because who is like Bnei Yisrael, who is such a great nation, because they have the power of Tikkun, and they are involved in the task of Tikkun of the Bria. Who is like the nation of Klai Yisrael, who is good, 
because they have actually been the second creation. And who is like Clydesville, who is a blessed nation, because they have done the greatest good, and as a result of that, they have achieved a tikkun haklali for the Brio, and as a result of that, they have gotten a Abo. Therefore, obviously, the nations will bless their children and say, may you be like Klai Yisrael, like the children of Israel. Why? Because just like the children of Israel is a blessed nation, why are they blessed? Because they have done the greatest good of all, which is to bring the universe to a corrected or a tikkun. Therefore, may you be like them. Because obviously when you bless your children, you bless them and you tell them, imitate this and this person. <clears throat> but you only tell the children that if the person that you want them to imitate has done a great thing. You don't tell them to imitate somebody who is very evil or has done very evil things. So therefore, what great things have Israel done that a guy would say to his child, may you be like Israel? They obviously have accomplished the task of being the second creation. Therefore, a guy says to them, you should be like Israel. So that is an indirect way of saying that if the Jews have what? Been massacred in the Bria, and therefore the guy uses them as a model to bless his child. Therefore, how have they been massacred in the Bria? Because the Rebbein Shalom has promised that he would conduct himself according to to make sure they accomplished that task. Thus, we see that the fact that the bracha that God promises Avram that he will conduct himself with Anagas Ayyichud and make sure that his descendants accomplish the task of correcting the state, the deficiency in creation, that he will make sure that this is done. Where is that understood? That is understood in the brocha when a goy will bless his child. Because the fact that a goy blesses his child, it means that Kaiswell has accomplished that task. Therefore, he blesses the child, and therefore the Roshim has conducted himself to Anogus Hayichud. Thus, the brocha of the Eschol Goy Godel, and I will make you a great nation, means the power of Tikkun. And it means that Kaiswell will be involved in the fundamental task of correcting or being the second creation. That's what that brocha means. Therefore, they are a great nation. And also the brocha of his bochu bezaracha, called goyo yoretz, that all nations shall bless themselves or they shall bless their children using Klai Yisrael as the model. That means that the Rebbe is going to ensure the fulfillment of their task through his attribute of anhoga seyichod. And therefore, a guy uses the Jew, who has been the second creation, as a model to bless his children. These two blessings given to Avram, the power of Tikkun and the attribute of the Yichud, as a guarantee, as a backup system, that Jews will actually be the second creation, are given by Yitzchak to Yaakov and his offspring. Therefore, we see what the Birchus Avram is. And why Rashi says that the Birchas Avram is only these two blessings? Because the Birchas Avram fundamentally is the fact that Avram can massacre creation. And number two, that the revolution will ensure or aid the descendants of Avram, the Jews, in order to massacre creation. And these two brochas exactly have that. The first thing, the first brocha says that. I will make you a great nation, which means you will have the power of Tikkun. And the second bracha says that you have accomplished the task because of the Anhogas Yichud of God. And that is why 
a guy will bless his children and say, May you be like Israel, who has done the greatest good of all, and that is they have brought the Rabbanishlam back into the Bria through their mitzvahs. Now, to continue, from the fact that Yitzchak gave the Birkas Avram only to Yaakov and not to Esav, we learn out that the mitzvah of Mila, the mitzvah, the commandment of circumcision, was only commanded to Yaakov and his offspring, and not to Esav and his descendants, not to Esav and his offspring. How? Because the Rambam states in Hukas Malachim that the Birkas Avram can only go to him who is considered Zaroy Shel Avram, the seed of Abraham. Not only that, but it must go to one who is considered Zaroy Shel Avram, the seed of Abraham, and to no one else. Now, since Esau was never given the Birkas Avram by Yitzchak, it would be indicated, it's implied, therefore, that Esau is not considered Zaroy Shel Avram. He's not considered of Abraham's seed. Therefore, he never got the brachos. He never got the birkos Avram. Now, since only they are obligated Mila, since only the Zaro Shel Avram, whoever that is, only the Abraham seed is obligated in the mitzvah of circumcision, it follows, therefore, that Yaakov and his offspring, who are considered Avram's seed, only they are obligated in the mitzvah of Mila, because we say they are Zaro Shel Avram, that's why they got Birkas Avram. So therefore, since they are the only Zahar Shel Avram, Abraham's seed, they only get the mitzvah of Mila because the mitzvah of Mila goes or is commanded only to the one who is called Abraham's seed. Whereas Esav, who is not considered Avram's seed, is not obligated in the mitzvah of Mila. And therefore, of course, since he's not considered Abraham's seed, he's also not, he also didn't get the Birkas Avram. Now, but we may ask a difficult question. Why is not Esav considered to be Abraham's seed? Not only is he a descendant from Avram, but his parents are Yitzchak and Rivka, two Jews, two of the, obviously, of the greatest Jews. Thus, his gene genealogy is exactly like Yaakov, Yaakov's. So the question is, of course, is why isn't Esav Zahashel Avram? in that he didn't get the commandment of Mila, and also that he didn't get Birkas Avram. We see he's descended from Avram, and not only that, but he's descended from Rivka and Yitzchok, of course, who are two Jews of the highest caliber. Even Yishmoel doesn't have that claim, because Yishmoel, even though his father was Avram, but his mother wasn't Sarah, his mother was Hagar. So Esau is greater in potential than Yishmuel, because his mother was Rivka, besides his father being Yitzchak, and his grandfather being Avram. So the question is, why isn't Hashkofa wise? In other words, according to the concepts in Hashkofa, what does it mean when we say that uh, that uh, Esav is not Zar Shal Avram, and therefore he does not get the mitzvah of Mila? But really, from what we have seen so far, we can answer this question. The Rabbani Shalom made an agreement, or he made a covenant with Avram, that he would have the power of Tikkun. He would have the power to bring God into the universe or remove him. In other words, <clears throat> that he would have this tremendous power to correct the deficiency in creation, which namely is the absence of the presence of God. 
and with it, of course, that Avram should be engaged in this pivotal task of bringing a complete tikkun to creation, to bring a complete correction or rectification to creation. Now, if he did this, if he did, in other words, if Avram would accomplish that task, the Rebbeinu would give Avram Oilam Habo, which is the intended Hatova, that is what God wants to give in terms of bestowing good on man. That is the agreement that the Rebbeinu Shalom made with Avram. <coughs> you be Masak in the Bria, you bring me back into this universe, and you will get Oilam Habo, where you will realize or you will experience God in, because you brought God back into the universe. Now, as a sign of this agreement, the Rabbi commanded Avram the mitzvah of Mila, the command of circumcision, to he and to his offspring, who would also have the same agreement with the Rabbi They would have the power of Tikkun, the descendants, the offspring of Avram would also have the power of Tikkun, and they would also engage in that fundamental, significant, primary task of bringing the universe to its corrected state of Gili Yehudoi throughout. Therefore, the mitzvah of Mila, the commandment of circumcision, is a symbol of the agreement that was made at the time of Brisbane Absalom, the covenant between the pieces, which appears in Parshas Lech Lecha. And this, of course, occurred between the Rebbe Shalom and Avram Avinu. And both Avram Avinu and his descendants who are parties to this agreement, must bear this sign in their physical bodies. That is the significance of the mitzvah of Mila. Mila indicates that you have the power of tikkun, and you must be engaged in that pivotal task to massacre creation. And as a physical sign, you must bear the sign of Mila. At a future date, not now, I will go into exactly how the mitzvah in, in its very form is an incredible, accurate representation of the agreement between Avram and the Rebbeinu Shalom. That the mitzvah itself is an incredibly accurate model or representation of the actual agreement between the Rebbeinu Shalom and Avram. It is a, f- a physical expression or communication of that agreement. But that's not for now. Right now I'm only saying that the mitzvah itself of Milam signifies the agreement between Avram Avinu and the Rabbanu Shlom. That the Rabbanu Shlom will give Avram and his descendants Ilim Abba if he and his descendants be Mesachin creation. Now, however, Esav, if you recall, because of his rejection of the religious beliefs and the righteous ways of Avram, completely lost the ability to massacre in creation. And with it, of course, the involvement in the primary task of bringing a Tikkun to creation. Therefore, if Esau and his descendants don't have that power, if they are not involved in being massacre in creation, therefore the mitzvah of Mila, the commandment of circumcision, which is a sign, it's a symbol of that agreement between the Rebbe Shalom and Avram, concerning these two ideas, Namely, that God will give Oil to Avram if Avram is Masakin creation, then obviously the mitzvah of Mila does not apply to Asaph and his offspring at all, since he no longer is a party to the agreement, because he lost it. In other words, he who has the power of Tikkun 
and is obligated to be involved in the tikkun of creation is called Zari Shil Avram. That is who Zari Shil Avram is, and therefore must bear its sign, which is Mila, circumcision, in his physical body, and get the Birkas Avram. These, of course, are Yaakov and his offspring. He, however, who does not have the power of Tikkun, or rather, one who has had it and lost it, and therefore is not involved in the fundamental task of rectifying creation, does not bear the sign of Mila, of circumcision, and is not called Zar Shil Avram. He's not called Abraham's seed, even if he is descended from Avram. But still, he is not called Zara Shel Avram. And as a result, he does not get the Birkas Avram. This, of course, is Esav and his offspring. That is why Esav is not obligated in the midst of circumcision. Because since he is not involved at all in the power of Tikkun and in the idea that he has the Masakan creation, and since Milo is the indication of that power, that agreement between God and Avram. Therefore, obviously, he doesn't have Mila. He's not obligated Mila because why in the world would he have that particular commandment? It means nothing. Only he who is Zar Shal Avram, only he who has the power of Tikkun, who will in effect or is being Masak in creation, they are involved in the primary task, only they have the mitzvah of Mila because Mila is that sign of the agreement between Avram Avinu and the Rabbi Islam. Now, it is interesting to note <clears throat> in the Torah, in the end of Tildus, that the Torah says again how great Esav was in the mitzvah of Kibud of Vo'em. Where do we see that? Because it says in the Torah, it says there, Vaya Esav, and Esav saw Kiberach Yitzchok as Yaakov, that Yitzchok blessed Yaakov. And he sent him to Padan Aram to take for him a wife when he blessed him. In other words, at the time he blessed him, that's when he commanded him to do that. And what did he command him? Do not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And of course, Yaakov listened to his father and his mother and he went to Padan Aram. Therefore, Esau himself saw that the daughters of Canaan are evil in the eyes of his father Yitzchak. Therefore, that Esau went to Yishmuel and he took the daughter of Yishmuel who is also, of course, the sister of Nevoyas. Nevoyas was also a son of Yishmoel, also for a wife. Interestingly enough, the Torah could have said in the beginning, Vayar Esav, and Esav saw, Kishilach Oisoy Padanaram, that Yitzchak sent Yaakov to Padanaram to take for him a wife. And he commanded him, saying that you should not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Why does the Torah say, and Esav saw that Yitzchak blessed Yaakov and he sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife and he commanded him do not take a wife from Benoist Canaan. Why does it insert also Kiberach Yitzchak is Yaakov that Esav saw that number one Yitzchak blessed Yaakov and number two he sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife over there not from the daughters of Canaan. It should just say and Esav saw that he sent uh, Yaakov to take a daughter's a daughter in Padan Aram and not from the daughters of Canaan and Esav imitated that and the reason why that happens is because it shows 
that even though Esau saw Yitzchak reaffirming the blessings which he should have gotten, and Yitzchak gave them to Yaakov, you would think that he would be exceedingly angry at his father. He would be boiling mad. He would be mad at his father Yitzchak for this, and therefore he, he wouldn't be concerned at all whatsoever if Yitzchak detests the woman of Canaan to be wives to his sons. In other words, why should he care if Yitzchak is bothered by the fact that he doesn't want his sons to marry the daughters of Canaan? He's boiling mad at his father for reaffirming the brachos to Yaakov. This would be the natural emotion of anybody. Instead, we find an incredible thing. Instead, we find him going to Yishmael to take one of his daughters. Why? To fulfill his father's wishes. And the incredible thing about it is that this wish or this command to take the daughters, or rather not to take the daughters of the land of Canaan, was not even told to Esau. It was told to Yaakov. But it was sufficient for Esau to hear this expressed to Yaakov, and therefore this is the wish of his father. That was sufficient for him to listen to his father and not marry the daughter of Canaan, but to marry the daughter of Yishmuel, even when Yitzchok didn't express this command to Esau directly, and even when at the same time that Esau is learning that his father detests the uh, daughters of Canaan, his father's blessing Yaakov with the blessings that Esau should have gotten. In other words, <clears throat> that is how great Esau was in honoring his father Yitzchok, in doing his wishes, even though they were not addressed to him directly, and even though he could, he could be boiling mad at his father. This is an interesting idea which again shows the greatness of Esau in terms of his observing Kibbut of. That Esau would observe Kibbut of even though he saw his father blessing Yaakov, he would still observe the command or the wishes of his father because that's how much he loved him. Even though his father did not tell him directly not to marry of the daughters of Canaan, still his kibbutz over him was so great he would observe the wish of his father even though it wasn't expressed to him directly, even though he had tremendous cause to be extremely mad at his father for reaffirming the blessings to Yaakov that he should have gotten. We have now concluded Parshas Tildes in our attempt to fathom the hidden internal plot of what really transpired in the story of Yaakov and Esav. We have gone through the birth and the childhood of Yaakov and Esav and also the incident of the blessings of Yitzchak being conferred on Yaakov. Let us now continue to follow the hidden inner plot as Yaakov journeys to Lovan and gets married there and has the twelve tribes. And all this occurs in Parshas Vayetze. Let us now go to Parshas Vayetze and continue this inner theme and see if the theme holds true even in Parshas Vayetze and Vayishlach where we will then finish the uh, story of Yaakov and Esav. It says very interestingly, Vayetzi Yaakov mibeh shova and Yaakov Ovino went out from Be'er Sheva and he went to Choron. This is what it says in the first verse 
in the first posuk in Parshas Vayetze. It could have said simply, Vayelech Yaakov Chorono, and Yaakov went to Choron. <clears throat> Why does it have to say that Yaakov went out from Beersheba, and then he went to Choron? This statement that Yaakov went out from Beersheba is obvious, and it's also redundant. Why? It's obvious because we know he lived in Beersheba, so obviously, if he would go on to a journey, that's exactly where he would start out from. So it's obvious that he went out from Beersheba, because that's where he lived. This statement is also redundant, it's superfluous, because it is not necessary at all to be stated, since all it has to say is that Yaakov went to Choron. Why does the terrorist state, and Yaakov went out from Beersheba, and went or journeyed to Choron? In other words, to go to Lovan. But the reason why the terrorist states the phrase that Yaakov went out from Beersheba is to tell you that the cause for Yaakov's going or journeying at all to Lovan does not lie in Choron. That's not why Yaakov left Beersheba to go to Choron. The cause of his leaving Beersheba does not lie in Choron by Lovan, but rather it lies in Beersheba. In other words, he did not leave Beersheba because he wanted to go to Choron. He left for Choron because he wanted to leave Beersheba. Or in other words, that's why he had to go to Lovan, because of what transpired in Beersheba. And since, and since he had to go to Lovan anyway, he would also choose from Lovan one of his daughters. Therefore we see that marriage was a secondary reason for going to Lovan, not a primary one. Since he uh, was going to go to Lovan anyway, because of what happened in Beersheba, he would also find a wife there. But it's not because he wanted to find a wife there. That's why he went to Choron. In other words, the reason for his leaving Beersheba does not lie in Choron. In other words, because he wants to get married. It lies of what happened in Beersheba. But once he's leaving Beersheba to go to Choron, he'll also, of course, get a wife there. Then what then is Yaakov's primary reason for going to love in Choron? The most obvious answer is the Poshet Pshat, or the plain meaning of the story as the Torah relates it. What happened in Beersheba? Yaakov went to love and to escape the wrath of Esau. And that's exactly what Rivka, his mother, told him to do. She said, Brach, flee to Lovon, reside with him until your brother Esau's anger is assuaged, until it's calm. That's the obvious, or the poshut shot, of why Yaakov left Beersheba. In other words, the reason why he left Beersheba is in Beersheba, because, he, because of the wrath of Esau, because of the fact that he took the brochas from Esau, Deceiving Esau, therefore Esau got tremendously mad and wanted to kill him. Therefore, because of that anger, that wrath, he, he left to go to Lovan. Once he was going to go to Lovan to flee from that wrath, so then they told him, look, go and get married there also. So therefore, we would think that maybe this is the reason why Yaakov left Beersheba to go to Choron. Because we know from the fact that the Torah uses that phrase, and Yaakov left Beersheba. This tells us that the cause for his journey lies in Beersheba, not in Choron. But we would think so far that the cause which lies in Beersheba, what transpired in Beersheba, is the fact of what happened with the brochus. 
and the fact that Esav got very mad and wanted to kill him. And therefore Yaakov, of course, had to leave to love him. But the truth is that there is a far more profound cause which demanded that Yaakov go to Lovan. And not only because, not the wrath of Esav. What was this profound reason? That the Torah alludes to by saying that the reason why Yaakov went to Choron is because of what transpired in Beersheba. If, if it does not refer to the fact that Esav's wrath forced Yaakov to flee, then what does it refer to? What is the profound reason? Okay. If you recall, the essential idea of one who has the task of the Inyan of Mashiach ben Yosef is to battle the Sitra Akhra, to engage in war with the Sutton and all his hosts. Now the Sutton and all his hosts are called Klippas, shells, husks. Why? Why is the term Klippas referred or referred to the Sutton and all his entourage, all his hosts? Because husks or shells <clears throat> are that which cling to the fruit but must be ultimately discarded in order to get the fruit. It's the same idea. The Sutton and his hosts cling or surround Kedusha or holiness. And what they try to do is get the holiness in order to use the energy that holiness gives. They try to get it for themselves. So they are husks or shells that surround holiness, trying to <clears throat> suck out the energy that holiness gives, to be unique from Kedusha is the term that's used. Therefore, they must be discarded like husks or shells. In other words, we see so far, so in other words, that's why Klippus is the term used when you want to refer to the Sutton and all his hosts, when you want to refer to the Sitra Akhra. Sitra Akhra, of course, means the other side, which means the Sutton and all his hosts. So there are three ways of referring to the same thing. The Sitra Akhra, which means the other side, the Sutton and all his hosts, or Klippas. It's all the same idea. And I had mentioned ex uh, why the term Klippa, Klippa is, is used to refer to the Sutton and all his hosts, because it's the exact same analogy. <clears throat> Just like the husks and shells surround the fruit and must be discarded, the same idea is that the Sutton and all his hosts, the Sitra Akhra, also surround Kedusha, to take the energy from Kedusha and use it in the evil ways that they want to, they also must be discarded. Now, let's go further. If you recall the essential idea of one who has the task of the Indian of Mashiach ben Yosef is to do battle to this Sitra Akhra, to this Sutton and all his hosts. This can only be done by entering his territory and fighting him and ultimately subduing him under the domination of holiness, Kedusha. Now, <clears throat> this is accomplished in practical terms by either directing the material world, which is the domain of the Sitra Akhra, and all its inhabitants, which more often than not wind up being the Sitra Akhra's agents, toward the service of the Rabbanishlam. That is one way. Or by being, the second way, or by being subdued and persecuted by the material world, which again is the Sitra Akhra's domain, and its inhabitants, which are more often than not the agents of the Sitrachah, in various degrees, and remaining steadfast in one's righteousness. Those are the two ways that you engage in battle with the Sitrachah. One of those two ways. Either you are underneath the Sitrachah, you are subdued by him, and you have to remain at Sadiq, even though he's 
punishing you and influencing you to try to do evil, or you subdue him by going to the material world and ruling over it. Therefore, you subdue the Sitra Akhra and you channel, you use the material world in the service of the Rabbani Shlom, that is the way you subdue the Sitra Akhra. But in both cases, it means that in order to subdue the Sitra Akhra, you must enter his territory, his domain. And that's where the battle begins. But you are either on top of him or you are on the bottom of him. One or the other. Now, I will continue next week. If you recall, just as a quick hazard of last week, that uh, <clears throat> the essential idea of one who has a task of the Indian of Mashiach ben Yosef is to battle the Sitra Akhra. In other words, the Sultan and all his hosts. All the Klippas. This can only be done by entering the territory of the Sitra Akhra and fighting him and ultimately, ultimately subduing him under the domination of holiness or Kedusha. How is this accomplished? <clears throat> this is accomplished in practical terms by either directing the material world, which is the domain of the Sitra Akhra, and the, the inhabitants of the material world, which more often than not are the agents of the Sitra Akhra, toward the service of the Rabbanishlam. And in that way, you are on top of the Klippos, on top of the Sitra Akhra. The second way is by being subdued and persecuted by the material world, which again is the domain of the Sitra Akhra, and by its inhabitants, which more often than not are the agents of the Sitra Akhra. In other words, to be persecuted and subdued by them in various degrees, and remaining steadfast in one's righteousness. These are the two ways that one engages in battle with the Sitra Akhra, and this is the union of the Mashiach bin Yusuf. Remember that you must enter his territory, generally speaking, in order to battle the Sitra Akhra. Now, since Esav initially was the one designated for this task, the union of the Mashiach bin Yusuf, he therefore was called an Ish Sodeh, one who would go out into the world and interact with them in order to subdue the Sitra Akhra. That is what the idea of Ish Sodeh really means. Now, when he failed at this task, it was then given to Yaakov to do. So Yaakov now had Esav's task to do. In other words, Esav before had to subdue the Sitra Akhra. That was the original task that he was designated to have. He had to be Kifra to subdue evil. This now was given to Yaakov, since Esav failed and he became evil himself. Therefore, Yaakov now has Esav's task to do, which is Kfiya subdue the Sitra Akhra, besides his own initial task, which he originally had been designated to do, and that we know was his Pashtus Kedusha, to spread holiness throughout. Now, when Yitzchak gave him the Brochus, it now meant that he had this task permanently. But if he now had the union of Mashiach ben Yosef permanently, and that is what the brochus of Yitzchok gave him, and also we know that the major area of battle is in the domain of the Sitra Akhra, which is the outside world, then obviously, or logically, he must leave the holy sanctuary of Yitzchok's residence and leave to the outside world to accomplish his task, and the mission of the union of Mashiach ben Yosef. Once he took over the union of ben Yosef in a permanent way, because Esav lost it, then he must go and do that task. How? You must go and engage in battle with the Sitra Akhra in his domain. Where is that? 
that is in the outside world. And that is exactly what happened. He left Beersheba to go to Choron, where the evil man Lovin resided, to withstand the evil pressures and influences that he would encounter by Lovin and also in Choron, the outside world. We now understand the true hidden cause of why Yaakov had to go to Lovin. Because he assumed permanently the union of Ben Yosef in Beersheba, that was the event that transpired there. He now had to go to Lovan in the Klippos to accomplish his task of the union of Mashiach ben Yosef. Just as Esav was forced to go into the Klippos, the outside world, by his temperament and physical constitution. This is what the Torah means when it says that Yaakov left Beersheba to go to Choram. He went to Lovan in Choram. Why? Because of what transpired in Beersheba. Not because he went to run away from the wrath of Esav. This is the Poshipshat. But the Suid, the profound meaning, is that he went to Lovan because of what transpired in Beersheba. And what transpired in Beersheba? He went to the Sitra Achor's domain, the Klippus, because he had permanently assumed by the Brochus of Yitzchok the union of Mashiach ben Yosef. And this is what transpired in Beersheba. This interpretation is a seed or the secret of this particular possible. That is why Yaakov went to Lovan. Because in Beersheba is where he got the union of Ben Yosef, because of the brochos of Yitzchak. Therefore he had to go and engage in battle with the Sitracha, which is exactly what he who is involved in the union of Mashiach Ben Yosef has to do. Therefore the Torah says, Vayetze Yaakov Beersheba, and Yaakov went out from Beersheba, from what transpired in Beersheba, where he took over the union of Mashiach ben Yosef in a permanent fashion. Therefore, Vayelech Yaakov, or rather Vayelech Chorona. Therefore, he had to go to Choron to engage in battle with the Sitra Achra, the Klippos, in Choron by Lovan, who certainly represented and was the agent of the Sitra Achra. This is the secret or the profound meaning of what this Pasuk means. And you see how beautifully consistent it is with the entire internal theme which we have been saying until now. Now, it is important to note that when a person is sent into the Klippus or the domain of the Sitra Achra, the domain of the Malchamovas or the Satan or the Yitzhahara, whatever you want to call him, when a person has to go into that territory to do battle with the Sitra Akhra, then what we see is that he encounters a situation, a negative and evil situation, which is exactly opposed to the characteristic, to that midah, to that attribute, which the person is trying to attain holiness and perfection with. That's the trade-off. That when you fight the Eight Sahara, you fight him in the exact area that is the attribute that you are trying to achieve perfection with. Now, since the main meter or characteristic or attribute that Yaakov was trying to achieve, since his main avoider was in the perfection of the attribute called MS, truth, that's what Yaakov ascribed to, he was trying to be a completely honest and truthful person, that's the union of MS, truth, okay, since he was trying to achieve perfection in that meter of truth, then the situation that the Sitra Akhra would create for Yaakov Avinu would be one that would heavily, heavily influence Yaakov 
to lie and be deceitful. In other words, sheker of falsehood. Because that is exactly what a person should come up against. That which he wants to really work on himself. If you really want to see a battle, then of course you create the opposite situation. And that is exactly what happened. Lovan was an incredibly deceitful and fraudulent individual. As we see all over the Torah, that he was a Ramai, that he was murdered, sheker, deceit and fraud. He was the quintessence of falsehood. Therefore, and we see of course that Lovan was this, from all the tricks that he tried to perpetrate on Yaakov. The classic trick was, of course was Leah. When Yaakov said he'd work for Rochel, instead he winds up marrying Leah. Now whether Minah Shemaim, of course, this was meant to be. But certainly on the part of Lovan, Lovan wasn't interested in what Rabboni Shalom's motive was, right? Or Rabboni Shalom's Chesboinus were. God's reckonings. He had his own reckonings because he wanted Yaakov to work further for him. So therefore that is the first classic uh, thing that uh, Lovan did, which obviously exemplified his incredible deceit, his trickery, and his falsehood. Therefore Yaakov would have to live with this kind of a person who is so dishonest and deceitful and he would have an incredibly difficult time maintaining his own great stature as a wally truthful and honest person. It's very difficult to live with that kind of a person and maintain your own honesty and sense of justice and truth. Very difficult. When you live with a person who is always deceiving you, you never know really what he thinks. That anything he says is calculated to try to exploit and manipulate you in the best possible way that he doesn't mean anything for your good only for his own good after a while it's very easy to begin lying to that person also because you can easily say it's in self-defense and of course once you begin lying and being deceitful even in self-defense once you begin acquiring an attribute even for the sake of heaven then of course you acquire that attribute even for the sake of self Therefore, Yaakov, of course, in order to remove himself from that temptation, would find it incredibly difficult to live with this evil person called Lovam. That is a situation that Yaakov went to. That once Yaakov had to go into the Klippa, then he would go into that Klippa, which is the exact antithesis of his own essential characteristic or attribute. And since his essential characteristic or attribute is truth and honesty, therefore the one who is waiting to embrace him to give him temptations, of course, would be an incredibly deceitful and false man, and this is Lovan. This is a principle which I just wanted to state, that when the Rabbani Shalom sends you into a clip-up to battle against the Sitra Achwa, the Sahara, then know that that Sahara is going to have the exact things which are the antithesis of those things that you are trying to develop. And we see this from Yaakov going to Lovan. Now, we see so far that Yaakov left Beersheba not because of the wrath of Esau. That's not why he left Beersheba. But, and this of course is the Tam Niglo. This is the revealed explanation or reason. But we, uh, in other words, we see so far that Yaakov left Beersheba not because of the wrath of Esau as everyone would think. And as I said, this is the revealed or the obvious explanation, the Tam Niglo. But we see that the real reason why Yaakov left Beersheba is because he must, he has to leave Beersheba in order to accomplish his mission of the union of Mashiach ben Yosef. In other words, to fight the Sitra Achra and to massacre the Kilkul in creation. 
This is why he must enter the Klippa, and this is the entire Indian of the Meshichos of Ben Yosef. This is the Tam Nistar, the hidden, the concealed reason why Yaakov left Beersheva to go to Choran. This idea that it seems to everyone that the cause of Yaakov's leaving Beersheva to Choran is to flee Esav's anger, the fact that it appears in the Torah as if the reason why Yaakov fled or left Beersheva was because to escape the wrath of anger, this idea reveals an awesome profundity of the way the Rebunishim conducts himself in the universe. We are now about to enter one of the secret portals of the Amhog of the Rebunishim, how the Rebunishim conducts himself, how he brings things about. Now, if the Sitra Achron knew, if the Eight Sahara or the Sutton knew, that Yaakov Avinu was going to Lovan to complete the Tikkun of the Kilkul in creation, in other words, to accomplish the mission of the Indian of Ben Yosef, which Esav lost as a result of his evil, his vicious. If the Sitra Achron knew this, then he would not stop to Makatre against Yaakov in order to prevent him from going. He would leave nothing unturned in order to prevent Yaakov from going to Lovam. Because by Yaakov going to Lovam, in effect what it means is that Yaakov perhaps may be accomplishing his task of being Masak in the Kilkun creation. And that, of course, produces devastating results to the Sitra Achra. Therefore, obviously, the Sitra Achra would leave no stone unturned in order to stop Yaakov Avinu from going to Lovam and actually completing the Tikkun as an of of the Kilkul in creation. Now, therefore, obviously, the last thing the Sitra Achra wants is a Tikkun for creation. That's the last thing he wants. Now, we may ask, how does the Rabbanishlam hide it from him? How does he conceal it from him? In order to prevent the Sitra Achra from producing a Kitrug against Yaakov. How? The way he does it is that he makes it appear to everyone, including the Sitra Achra, that Yaakov is really leaving Beersheva because he is fleeing Esav. That's the obvious reason, not the hidden esoteric reason. Thus, there is no Kitrug against Yaakov to prevent them from accomplishing the task of the Tikkun, of the Kilko in creation. This is what results. As a result of the fact that the Sitra Achra thinks that Yaakov is leaving because of the wrath of Esav, therefore he doesn't bother to try to obstruct Yaakov's leaving. Therefore, the wrath of Esav actually conceals from the Sultan himself the true purpose of Yaakov's going to Lovan. And we know the real reason, that he was going to Lovan to involve himself in the achievement of the union of Ben Yosef. This is one idea. This is how the Rebbeinu conceals from the Sitra Achra the fact that Yaakov is now going to go as an of, as a patriarch, to massacre the Kilkan creation. But wait a minute. The ways of the Rebbeinu are even more profound than this. Do we think that we have understood exactly the logic and the rationale of the Rebbeinu Is this the way the Rebbeinu conceals from the Sitra Achra? 
by providing some kind of an obvious reason why Yaakov would flee? The answer is no. There's something which is far more profound how the Rebbeinu deals with the Sitra Akra, how he conceals from the Sitra Akra any kind of messianic process which would incredibly threaten the Sitra Akra's own existence ultimately. Now, you may ask how? How does the Rebbeinu do it? Who is responsible for Yaakov, Yaakov's going into the Clippers, for Yaakov going to Lovan? Who is responsible for this and thereby enabling Yaakov to bring a tik into the Bria? The answer is Esav. Because as a result of the wrath of Esav, Yaakov now leaves to go to Lovan and ultimately bring a tikkun, withstand the wiles and the cunning of Lovan, and remain at Sadiq, and ultimately, as a result of that, bring a tikkun to creation. Who is responsible? Esav. Esav is responsible for this. Esav, who is the agent of the Sitra Akra himself. Thus, the Sitra Akra, through Esav, is responsible for Yaakov going into the Klippus, going to Lovan, and ultimately thereby bringing a tikkun to creation. In other words, Yaakov's actually being Masak in the Bria is caused by the Sitra Akra himself through the intermediary of Esav. This idea of the Sitra Akra actually pushing Yaakov, forcing Yaakov to Masak in the Kilkel, unknowing to the Sitra Akra himself, reveals one of the most profoundest secrets or one of the most profoundest principles of the way the Rabbanishim conceals from the Sitra Akra himself the entire process of Tikkun, the entire process of Messi, the entire messianic process, and the entire ultimate redemption itself. And as a result of the fact that it is concealed from the Sitra Akra, he does not makatrig at all, he doesn't prosecute at all, he doesn't try to obstruct this process. The way the Rabbanishim conceals from the Sitra Akra the entire messianic process is that he makes the Sitra Akra himself the very cause of the messianic process. That is the best way to hide from anybody. That you be the cause itself for that process enveloping, developing. Therefore, obviously, it will be concealed from you because you yourself don't know what you're doing. Now, therefore it comes out that not only does the Sitra Akra not obstruct the messianic process because it is concealed from him, but is its very cause. This is how profound the ways of the Rabbani Shalom is. What happened here by Yaakov and Esav is nothing more than a mere expression, a manifestation of this principle. Let me explain. The Sitra hopes that Yaakov, by leaving the holiness and the influence of Yitzchok, to leave that stature, that home which is pervaded by Kedusha of Yitzchok, and by being forced into the outside world, where the Sitra Akra, the Sultan, has complete dominion. He hopes, and he surely knows, that Yaakov will surely fall from a spiritual level and be Makakal de Bria. This is what he's expecting. Because he feels that if you are not in proximity to a tremendous Sadiq, not only are you not in proximity, but if you are forced to go out into the world and clash with it, the world where the Sitra Akra has tremendous amount of dominion, then you will zikha fall. This is what the Sitra Akra hopes. So what does he do? 
he strongly influences Esau as the Yitzhahara. In other words, he incites Esau, he causes Esau to, Esau to get mad. And of course, Esau freely and readily succumbs to this influence. Esau has Bechira. But because Esau wants to go in the way of evil, therefore when the Sitra Achra arouses anger in him, he will follow that course. That's what's meant by the fact that Esau is the agent of the Sitra Achra. Not that Esau doesn't have any free will, but since Esau anyway wants to go in the direction of evil, therefore the Sitra Achra knows that all he has to do is to bring out any kind of temptation and bam! Esav is on his way to fulfill what the Sitra wants. Therefore, what he does is he strongly influences Esav as the Eight Sahara to become mad at Yaakov. And of course, Esav freely and readily succumbs to this influence because he wants to be evil. Therefore, Esav fumes and Yaakov flees with the Sitra laughing all the while because now the Sitra assumes that now that Yaakov has to run away from Yitzchak, the holiness that resides with Yitzchak, and he has to go into the dominion of the Sitra Akhra, where the Yitzhara has his dominion. So he feels that surely Yaakov will fall. And if Yaakov will fall, then there'll be more kilkul to the creation. But the Rabbani Shlom wants Yaakov to leave Yitzchak, to go into the Klippus. Why? Since Yaakov has the union of Ben Yosef, of, of, of ben Yosef permanently, he must go into the Klippus in order to complete his permanently assigned task. That's what the Bosham wants. Therefore, he uses the wiles and the cunning of the Sitra Akhra to be the very instrument to force Yaakov into the Klippa, to go to Lovan and Choram, and ultimately be Masakin, what he has to be Masakin as an Ov. Therefore, it comes out, that the Sitra Akhri is unaware of what is transpiring because he thinks that this situation totally benefits him and that's why he, the Sitra Akhri, caused it to be in the first place. But the true idea is that the Rosham wants this situation to occur and he uses the cunning and the wiles of the Sitra Akhra and he allows it to occur because that's what he wants Yaakov to do, to go into the Klippa because now that Yaakov has assumed the obligation or the task of the Indian of Ben Yosef, he must go into the Klippa to complete the task and be uh, and, 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 and remain steadfast, to remain at Sadiq and therefore be Masakin, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Kukul in creation. Therefore, the Sitra Akhra thinking that what he wants Yaakov to do is coming about because he has his own cheshbon, his own reckoning but of course the Ramon uses, manipulates the Sitracha in that sense to do his bidding because that's exactly what he wants Yaakov to do therefore the true significance of what is really happening is totally hidden from the Sitracha since the Sitra Akhra wants this event to occur, but he is unaware that when this event occurs, something else will also be occurring which is not known to him, which will ultimately bring about the destruction of the Sitra Akhra himself. That is the true Amkus, the partial Amkus, the profundity of how the Rebbeinu conducts the Bria. This idea, or rather the concealment from the Sitra Akhra, of the messianic process is done through the sitra or is rather is accomplished or achieved through the sitra akhra himself being the cause and the instrument of this very process itself. Therein lies the incredible profundity 
of the way the Rebbe makes sure that there will be a Tikkun in this world, and that there will be an ultimate redemption to the Jews. This idea that all beings, all things, including the Sitra Akhra, must that they must bring creation to its ultimate Tikkun, and to ensure the final Geula for Klai even though they may think that they are furthering only their own objectives, is called Yichud Hanhogosoi, which means the oneness or the singularity of the direction that the creation goes to. That's what Yichud Hanhogosoi means. In other words, the concept that we are now seeing where the Rabbi Shalom forces all beings, even though they have free will, to go in the direction that he wants. And of course, it, it takes infinite wisdom to be able to do that, to be able to get individuals who have free will and use them to bring the world in the direction that he wants it to go. This principle is called Yichut Hanagosoi. The fact that the Anhogo of the Rabbi Shalom is in only one direction, and not many, that he does not allow individuals, beings who have, who have free will to direct the universe in their direction, to achieve their own objectives. But even they must be subservient to the direction that he wants. That is called Yichud Hanagosoy. And we see it beautifully illustrated over here by Yaakov and Esav. Therefore, what do we see? That we have three ideas. We have Yichud Mitziusoy, the fact that God is the only thing that exists. That's Yichud Mitziusoy. That is responsible for, that causes Yichud Shlitosoy, the fact that God is the absolute ruler, obviously, if He is the only thing that has being, if He is the only thing that really exists, obviously, He is the only true absolute master or controller of anything of, or the director of everything. And this Yichud Shlitosoy, since God is the absolute master, director, and controller of all creation, all existence, then this causes the third principle to be the Yichud Hanagosoi. Because he who is absolute master obviously can make sure that the universe must go in the direction that he wants to go. Even with people acting according to free will. This reveals how incredibly profound and deep is the acts of the Rabbi Shalom in relating to his creation. This is what we see so far, that the idea of the Sitra Akhra being the very instrument, the very agent, the very vehicle of bringing in the Gu'ur to Klai is part of the profundity of the Rabbanu Shalom. And the Rabbanu Shalom accomplishes this by allowing the Sitra Akhra to do what he wants and to steer him in that kind of direction where whatever the Sitra Akhra wants to do is an exact uh, accordance with the Rabbi Shem's direction also. And we see this by Yaakov and Esav, that the Sitra Akhra has his own cheshbonus, his own understandings and objectives to achieve that Yaakov should flee to Choran, namely that he should be destroyed. However, the Rabbi Shem wants Yaakov to go into the Klippah to masakin what has to be done in that Klippah since Yaakov took over the entire task of the Indian of Ben Yosef. Now, there is another great secret which is revealed by the Torah and which I'd like to state. Who is responsible for Yaakov's actually going into the Klippas to massacre creation 
according to Yaakov's designated task. Who is responsible? And the answer is Esav. Esav is the one, even though he's the intermediary, but he is still the immediate cause. Why Yaakov is fleeing to go into Lovin to be to to engage in battle with Lovin, which means to engage in battle with the agent of the Sitrachra, and thereby be masakin the kilkel in creation, according to what he has to do at the level of an of. The one who, of course, is responsible is Esav. Yaakov leaves to go to Lovin to escape Esav's great murderous rage. This is what the Torah tells us. Now, this event foretells that just as by Yaakov, the one who caused Yaakov to actually be a second creation, who forced Yaakov into the situation whereby he would actually bring this correction, this modification to creation, is Esav. In other words, the one who caused Yaakov to actually be Masak in creation is Esav. Therefore, in the future, the one who will cause the descendants of Yaakov, who are the Jews, to Masak in creation, will be the descendants of Esav also. And who are they? We know that they are Edom, who eventually, of course, became Rome, who eventually became Christianity. The exact same parallel. And this is exactly what has happened in the past and what is now happening in the present. It is Christianity, namely Esau, that has subjugated and persecuted the Jews for close to 2,000 years. And it is they, through their subjugation and their persecution, who are the present-day Klippa in which the Jews must live. And they are enabling the Jews to bring a tikkun to the Bria, thereby ensuring the ultimate redemption of the Jews. So we see that the Torah foretells that that which transpired 3,800 years ago in the events of Yaakov and Esav will again happen in the events of their descendants. This is what we see. That it is not only Esav who forces Yaakov to flee and ultimately come to Lovan and be Masak in creation, but also it is Esav's descendants who will do the exact same thing. This is the Nevoah, or the Soid, that the Torah reveals. In other words, when we say that Maisa Ovo is similar bonum, that which happened to the fathers, our patriarchs, is what will again transpire to their descendants, their children, we see it literally manifested. It is Esav who forces Yaakov in the Klippa to Masakin creation, Therefore, it is the descendants of Esav, namely Rome, and after them Christianity, that will also force the Jews into that situation whereby they will bring a tikkun to creation, and ultimately they will see redemption. So we see a very interesting thing. It's almost poetic. We behold that Esav must be involved in the tikkun of the kilka of creation. That, unfortunately, or rather fortunately, depending on what happened to him, is, and the way he perceived it, is what happens. He must be involved in the union of Mishikh ben Yosef, in one of two ways. Either he himself, with his own free will, will be massacred creation by being a tzaddik. That is one alternative. Or, if that doesn't, alternative does not, is not realized, then he will cause another, his brother Yaakov, to be massacred creation. And this, of course, will be against Esav's will, against his own will. And, of course, this will happen because he's a Russia. He has no choice. 
He must be involved in the Tikkun of Kilku of creation. This is the lot of Esau. But he's got a choice. Either you do it yourself. You be massacring the uh, Kilkun creation by being a tzaddik, engaging in battle with the Sitra Akra, and therefore doing that designated task of the Indian of Ben Yosef. If you don't do it, then you yourself will be the vehicle, the instrument of forcing your brother, Yaakov, to do it. But of course, when you do that, it's because you are Russia, and it will be against your own will. This is the idea of Esav. So Esav ultimately is always involved in the Indian of Ben Yosef. Either he is doing it himself by his own free will, of course, and this never happened because Esav rejected it and became a Russia. He sold the Bukhara. So therefore, what ultimately happened, of course, is that Esav himself is forcing Yaakov to do the Tikkun creation, something which he himself should have done in the first place. Let me again restate the idea presented previously. Since it's a very important principle, I want to state it again to, so that everybody may achieve a greater clarity. Remember, in order to ensure the Tikkun of the Bria, the continuation of the Messianic process, and the ultimate final redemption of Klai Yisrael, then the Rabbani must conceal these things, these events which lead to the redemption, the Tikkun, and the actual Messianic process from the Sitra Akhra. Why? So he will not obstruct or impede in any way by his Kitrug against the Jews, because the Sitra Akhra is always trying to prosecute the Jews, bring them to the bar of justice. So the Russian wants to conceal from the Sitra Akhra, so therefore he won't obstruct or impede by his kitrug or his prosecutory attempts against the Jews. Those events which really bring about the Tikkun and the ultimate redemption. This is what the Rabbanishim does. Now, how does he conceal it? He does this by using those very judgments against the Jews, which is really brought about by the kitrug, the prosecutory attempts of the Sitra Akhra, and which the Sitra Akhra himself instigated these judgments against the Jews for his own benefit. So what he does is that he uses, the Rabboni Shalom uses these very judgments against those Jews to be the very instrument or the vehicle which enabled the Jews to massacre the Bria and be ultimately redeemed. This is the principle. Thus, the Sitra Akhra instigates Kitrugim or prosecutions against the Jews for his own objectives. He does it for his own agenda, for his own self-interest. And of course, he winds up being the very cause of the messianic process itself, which ultimately redeems the Jews. This is what the Rabbani Shalom does. This is the way God conducts himself in order to allow these processes and the ultimate gu'ul or redemption of Israel to proceed. Now, I repeat this idea because this concept is really one of the greatest secrets of Suidus in Judaism. And if you really think about it, this concept that the Rabbani Shalom uses the Sitrach himself to bring about the Yemaisa Mashiach, to bring about the Tikkun of the world, to actually ensure the Messianic process, this idea really explains a great deal the events of world history, especially as they relate to the Jews. 
evil men and evil nations who really choose freely to be evil, they want to be evil. These evil nations and evil men are in reality the agents, the shlichim of the Sitra Akhra. Why? Because he merely has to tempt them in his guise or in his appearance as the Sahara. He merely has to, attempt, to tempt them to do evil. And immediately they succumb, they give in to his temptations. Because they of their own free will want to do evil. So he knows that they are his allies, that they are somebody that he could depend on. This is what the Sitra Akhra knows, because they really want to do evil. So he merely has to give them temptations, and of course they go right away in that direction. Therefore, the Sitra Akhra knows that they will always give in to him, because they wish to commit evil of themselves. So he uses them, these evil nations, these evil people, especially in the Umm Sa'ilam, the Goyim of the world, he uses them to execute those judgments which he has successfully brought against the Jews. So now you see it's really a merger between the Sitra Akhra who prosecutes in heaven against the Jews for his own benefits, his own self-interest, and he uses the Goyim, basically, or evil people and evil nations, to execute those judgments. It is those painful events which come, about, which come upon the Jews. Of course, first by the Sitra Akhra as the prosecutor, and second by the evil nations and persons as agents for the Sitra Akhra. It is those painful events that actually cause the messianic process to actually succeed. Thus we see that Rishoyim, as well as the Sitra Akhra, are in reality used and manipulated by the Rabbani Shlom in an incredibly, awesomely brilliant and infinite way to be the very cause and the instrument for Geula, redemption, and Tikkun, the actual correction, the actual um, rectification of the Bria, of creation. And the fact that they are used, that the Sitra Akhra and the Rishoim are used in such a manner conceals from them what is truly transpiring and they therefore cannot obstruct this process from occurring. But if you really want to think about it, that is not the only reason why the Rabbani Shalom uses them, use the Sitra Akhra and the Rishoim to be the very vehicle for Tikkun in Geula. There's another profound reason why he uses them, not only to conceal from them so therefore they won't obstruct this process itself. But there is another very profound and significant reason why he uses them themselves, the Sitra Akhra and the Rishoyim that are his agents, why he uses them to actually promote and to make sure that the messianic process proceeds. What is this profound reason? If you think for a minute, can you imagine that even though the Sitra Akhra instigates judgments against the Jews in response to his own evil designs, his own self-interests, his own objectives, can you imagine that even though evil men and evil nations perpetrate evil deeds against the Jews in response to their own evil designs, their own self-interests and their own objectives, Notwithstanding all of this, they are actually manipulated and employed to be the very cause and instrument of Tikkun and Gula by the Rabbani Shlom. So I ask you, is this not the greatest demonstration of all, 
of the absolute mastery, the complete and utter control that the Rabbanu Shalom has over creation, this is an incredible demonstration. In other words, the tikkun and the redemption of Jews is certainly the very last thing that the Sitra Akhra wants, that evil men and evil nations want. They certainly don't want this to occur. Yet so great is the Rabbanu Shalom's control, his mastery over all creation, so great is his wisdom, his chokhmah, his intelligence, that they with their own free will, they with their own self-interest and objectives, not only can they not obstruct the process of redemption, the messianic process, and the process of tikkun or the correction of creation, but they are the very agents that bring them about. In other words, so great and infinite is the control of the Rabbani Shalom over creation that the universe must go in the direction that the Rabbani Shalom wants it to go. Thus, even beings whose interests are to bring evil and destruction to creation, even beings whose interests are the opposite of the Rabbani Shalom's, literally the antithesis of the Rabbani Shalom's. In other words, the Sitra Akhra, the evil men and the evil nations, they who have interests completely contrary to what God wants, they must serve the will of the Rabbani Shalom. They are actually used to actualize, to fulfill the Ratzin of the Rabbani Shalom. That is how great the mastery and control of the Rabbani Shalom is, that he can get people to do what he wants, even the people who have free will, even the people who do not want to do the will of the Rabbani Shalom, even the people who want to do exactly opposite to the Rabbani Shalom, he can get them to do exactly what he wants. That's how great of a control he has on the Bria. That's how brilliant Kaviyochel, if I can use that word, the Rabbani Shalom is. And therefore, if it is his will that creation will achieve a tikkun through the Jews, and that the Jews will merit Oilam Habo, then this is what must happen. And those who would obstruct this goal from occurring, not only can they not impede or obstruct this process, but they become the very agents for its fruition, for its fulfillment. Can you imagine what the reaction of the Rishonim will be in Yemais HaMashiach? Can you imagine what the reaction of the Sitra Achra will be? Utter shock and disbelief. Why? They will be stunned and astonished that not because, not only because the Jews have been redeemed, because the Jews have successfully fulfilled their task, because the Jews are truly the chosen people. That's not only why they're astonished. But they are astonished, they are astounded, they cannot believe why, that it is they, they themselves, who have caused the entire Tikkun and the Messianic era to be ushered in. Could you imagine how incredible they will appear that they can't believe this? It is not sufficient that we have made a mistake that it is Jews that have been massacred creation, that it is the Jews who get Elim Habot, that it is the Jews who bring the Tikkun to the world, that it is the Jews who is the nation that the Rabbani Shalom wants and loves. They die that they have not realized this, but that they themselves have enabled Klai Yisrael to actually do what they in their minds would never have done. 
And of course, this has only come about because of the incredible chokhmah, the wisdom, and the ultimate power of the Rabbanu throughout the Bria. They will, and all mankind and all creation, they will realize the truth of what's called Yichichli Tosoy, that the Rabbanu is the absolute master of all creation. He is the absolute master over every being, including the Sitra and the Rishoyim, and that they completely serve the will of the Rabbi Hashem. This is what they, the Rishoyim, the Sitra etc., the Goyim, all creation will see the Yichud of the Shlita of the Rabbi Hashem. And that there is such a thing as Yichud Hanagosoy, that because the Rabbi Hashem has such an incredible mastery over the Bria, it's because he has total control over the Bria, Therefore, the universe must go in the direction that God wants, and not in the direction that men who have free will would want it to go. That's the Yichud Hanagosoy. This is what everybody realizes in the Moisa Mashiach. Therefore, now we understand what it means that Vahoyu Hashem that on that day, everybody will realize that God is king, but not only a king, but a king who is the only king, that he is the absolute master, because he has brought about the Geula of Klai Israel through the people who, the Rishoyim, the Sitra Achra, who would never have wanted it to be in the first place. And they would have completely tried to obstruct it and impede what has happened. He is such a master and Melach that he has used them to be the very agents of the Geula and the Tikkun in the Bria. We can now understand how on Hogas Hayichud, which is the backup system that the Rabbani Shem employs to bring Jews through their merits to Olam works. In other words, the Sitra Achra and all Rishoyim are the agents of Anhogas Yichud of the Rabbani Shlom. This demonstrates in the greatest possible manner that the Rabbani Shlom is the absolute master over everybody and everything, even the Sitra Achra. The sec- this secret of Anhogas Yichud of the Rabbani Shlom, op- uh, how it operates, is revealed to us, therefore, in the event of Yaakov fleeing Esav's wrath and going to Lovan.